Hey, it's Alan, and I just wanted to let you know that you can now listen to the ongoing history of new music early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. For centuries, the dominant form of high-speed transportation was the horse. You could either ride the horse or hitch him to a buggy and have him tow it. And to make the horse and buggy go as fast as possible, the driver might employ a whip. Not very pretty or humane, but the buggy whipped worked very well. And because there was always a need to travel by horse and carriage, a buggy whip industry was established that employed many, many people. However, one day, not that long ago, someone came up with something better than the horse, and it was called the automobile. And in a matter of years, the lucrative buggy whip industry collapsed as more and more people bought cars. Buggy whip manufacturers were alarmed, and they demanded that someone do something to protect their venerable and ancient profession. They said things like, the government ought to do something. If they don't ban the automobile, we'll all be out of business. But of course, there was no going back. Banning the car would have meant hobbling the economy as a whole. The buggy whip people had to face the facts. They were done. And soon, buggy whip manufacturers all but disappeared. Economists love this story because it shows how technology can render a very old, very profitable industry irrelevant in a very short period of time. The market niche for the product suddenly evaporates, throwing that particular industry into chaos, decline, and inevitably collapse. And yeah, a lot of people lose their jobs. But this is how capitalism works. It's a side effect of progress. I can think of a bunch of different examples in the last 150 years that are similar to this. Player pianos used to be a big deal until the phonograph came along. Guys used to deliver big blocks of ice for ice boxes, but then you could buy an electric refrigerator. And people used to make a lot of money designing artwork for record albums. And I mean a lot of money. Which got me thinking, maybe we'd better do a show on album cover artwork before that whole industry disappears forever. This is the Ongoing History of New Music Podcast with Alan Cross. Before we go any further, let's play something from an album that has a very famous piece of artwork on the front cover. You've probably heard of it. Nirvana from Nevermind. You know, the album with the naked baby swimming in the pool, reaching for the hook that's baited with a dollar bill? That one. As you might guess, there is a story here. Kurt Cobain fancied himself something of a graphic design artist, and when it came time to come up with some artwork for Nevermind, he had an idea. One of Kurt's pre-music jobs was working as a lifeguard at the YMCA in his hometown of Aberdeen, Washington, and one of the things he had to do was supervise preschooler swims and for whatever reason that experience stayed with him when it came to design something for the nevermind album he had two ideas first of all he thought he might do something with a monkey he had this picture of a monkey that he had created himself he's kind of proud of it thought it would make a good front cover but then after some discussion it was agreed that the monkey could stay but he was best on the back cover the other idea involved a baby being born underwater because since you're in the recording sessions Kurt and Dave Grohl saw this documentary on birth and babies underwater. So Kurt had a word with the art director at the label, and they started discussing how to incorporate some underwater birth shots into the album cover. But 
as you might guess, things got a little complicated. An underwater birth thing would be, um, well, probably a little too graphic. And that's when the designer assigned to the project, a guy named Robert Fisher, suggested a compromise. A swimming baby. Kurt liked the idea. Also brought back memories of the YMCA in Aberdeen. After some searching, they found a stock photo that they could license, but the photographer who took that photo demanded to be paid $7,500 a year for every year the album was in print. So, screw that. For that price, they could find their own swimming baby. A photographer named Kirk Weddle was hired. He was an ex-Navy dude whose previous underwater experience involved, well, blowing things up with dynamite. Weddle was put in charge of wrangling up some babies, and one of the families he called was Rick and Renata Spencer of Eagle Rock, California. They had a brand new baby boy, four-month-old Spencer. Weddle was also a minister, having been ordained through a mail-order offer in the back of a magazine, and he was actually the guy who married Rick and Renata. So Rick and Renata and Spencer and a bunch of other babies were rounded up, and everybody headed to the pool at the Pasadena Aquatic Center, and one after another, all these parents threw their babies into the pool where Weddle snapped their pictures. Out of all the babies that got wet that day, Spencer, the youngest of the group at four months, was selected. The fish hook with the dollar bill was Kurt's idea. That was added later. That's a Photoshop thing. A couple of things about this final picture. If you look at the right side of Spencer's rib cage, you can see Dad's handprint where he was being held before he was tossed into the pool. And, of course, Spencer's naughty bits are in full view, although the record company wanted to really airbrush them out. So what does all this mean? Well, got this baby swimming for a dollar bill and a fish hook. Well... It's the innocent, naked baby lost in an alien environment chasing the almighty dollar. Some people think it symbolized Kurt's state of mind now that Nirvana was on a major record label. Oh, by the way, Spencer, he was paid $150 for all his troubles. And, and where's Spencer now? Well, at last word, he's still living with his folks in the L.A. area. He has a platinum award for Nevermind hanging over his bed. And here's the weird thing. He's never been much of a Nirvana fan. The white stripes are his thing. For now, anyway. Welcome again, I'm Alan Cross, and if you haven't guessed by now, this show is all about album cover artwork. And the thing that got me thinking about doing this program was the sales figures for compact discs. Down double digits again. Does no one buy CDs anymore? No, forget that. Does anybody buy albums anymore? We're going more and more digital every day. Why go through the hassle of going to a record store when you can just download whatever you want a matter of seconds, 24 hours a day, and you don't even need a computer. You can do it on a cell phone. And by going digital, we're really moving into an a la carte world when it comes to music. Forget buying an entire album to get that one or two songs we want. We'll get that song or songs some other way, but not by buying an album. The album is dying. But it wasn't all that long ago that you had this 12 by 12 inch canvas to work with, front and back. And maybe if you had something called a gatefold sleeve, another couple of square feet to work with. Then there were the inside sleeves. You could have four, six, or even eight square feet of canvas to play with. That's a lot of real estate that could be covered with art. And a lot of people made a lot of money designing this artwork. It got a little tougher when the palette was reduced from the 12 by 12 space of the album to the 5 by 5 cover of the CD. But then again, CDs could come with multi-page booklets that also needed to be decorated. So before the CD and the album disappears completely, let's pay homage to the work that's gone into making them look pretty. Okay, 
Let's talk about another iconic album cover. It's the Joshua Tree from U2. So go grab your copy. You do have one, right? U2 and Bullet the Blue Sky from one of the most famous looking albums of all time, The Joshua Tree from 1987. As the band was finishing the record, they began to think about how they wanted it to look. It was a very American record in terms of themes and images, so everyone felt that the artwork should be shot somewhere in the United States. So in December of 1986, U2 flew to Los Angeles and they hired a bus. And they drove off into the Mojave Desert with rock photographer Anton Corbin. They drove around looking for locations and stayed in crappy motels at night in and around Death Valley. At one point, somebody asked the bus driver, hey, what are those weird cactus-looking things out there in that field? They're called Joshua trees, he replied. And Bono thought that was a really cool name for a tree, so he asked that they stop and have some pictures taken with some of these trees. They pulled over for about 20 minutes, took some shots, and then they left. When it came time to examine the contact sheets of all the photos that had been taken, the shots from that 20-minute rest stop were judged to be the best. They somehow captured and encapsulated everything that the band was about at the time. All we know about the tree that we see on the back of the album was that it was somewhere in the Joshua Tree National Park. You 2 never told anyone where it was because they didn't want anyone to find it and vandalize it. However, it literally was in the middle of nowhere. Sadly, despite U2's precautions, the tree is gone. It died and fell over unseen and unheard sometime in the fall of 2000. It was about 200 years old, and its time had simply come. Since then, several intrepid fans have found its remains, but its actual location remains secret, lest anyone spirit it away. But if you're ever in the area, and you find a pile of dead wood, and there's a series of stones laid out in the shape of a heart nearby, you'll know you're in the right place. Listen, since we're out in the desert, do you have a copy of The Killer's Samstown CD? Okay, pull it out and have a good look. An explanation of the surly model and the dead sheep coming up after this from the album. The Killers, and When You Were Young, the first single from the Samstown CD. Okay, let's have a look at that artwork. The photographer was, once again, Anton Corbin, who was one of the most famous, if not the most famous, rock photographers of all time. Did the Joshua Tree thing for U2. The Killers are from Las Vegas, which is also in the desert, and this must have put Anton into a similar creative headspace. One of the first things he did to stage the shots for the album was hire a dead sheep. The Longhorn is the official sheep of the state of Nevada. Posing a live one would be difficult. See, longhorns are quite vain and camera shy, apparently. So he rented one, a dead one, a stuffed one, from the local museum. Anton also wanted a beauty queen. Not a real beauty queen, but someone who looked a little, you know, damaged. Anton found who he was looking for at the Las Vegas studio where the killers recorded most of the album. Her name is Felice Lazay. She worked as a production assistant there. So Anton took Felice and the dead sheep to an abandoned mobile home out in the blazing desert and started shooting pictures. Dozens were shot, and the best one of the lot made the cover of the CD. There you go. So there are some album cover secrets from three big CDs. You want to know more? Of course you do. More in seconds.
The artwork we see on albums has been evolving over the last hundred years or so. Back in the beginning, the sole purpose of the album cover was to identify its contents. Mostly, it was just a plain brown wrapper. As the music industry grew, and as more and more people began to buy pre-recorded music, and as more and more albums began to compete for attention on the racks and record stores, album cover artwork turned into a bona fide art form. The first color record jackets appeared during World War II, and by the late 1950s and early 1960s, the plain brown wrapper was dead. Most LP records featured portraits and mugshots of the artist. But as the 60s progressed, the artwork concepts became more and more ambitious and became more consumed with reflecting or perhaps even creating a specific image, culminating with a famous Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club band package from the Beatles, who then, of course, promptly followed that with the White Album, which was the total anticlimax. From the middle 1960s, album art just exploded. Good cover art became essential, and as a result, a number of companies sprang up to service this particular need. One of the biggest was Hypnosis. This was a British company who became famous for doing the artwork for albums like Pink Floyd's Dark Side of the Moon. You know the one with the prism? They did that one, among others. They did Led Zeppelin, Houses of the Holy, and Presence, and In Through the Outdoor, and others. Plus, they did Genesis, and Peter Gabriel, and Paul McCartney, and many, many others. One of the three principals in Hypnosis was Storm Thorgerson. Storm was the guy who came up with the Dark Side of the Moon cover, which many people still consider to be the greatest piece of album artwork ever. When the company broke up in 1983, he went solo and designed artwork for everyone from Anthrax to The Offspring to Ween. He was also hired to do the artwork for this Canadian record from Ian Thornley. If you know the CD, the front features a variation of Storm's famous repeating image motif. It's a beach with a cellar door that apparently leads through the ground into some kind of alternate universe. It's, it's classic stuff, and it was created by one of the most famous album art dudes of all time. Ian Thornley with Come Again, the title track of his 2004 album, Artwork by Storm Thorgerson. Another famous album cover artist from back in the day is Peter Seville. He's from Manchester, and through a series of circumstances, ended up being the official go-to guy for the most famous records released on the factory label. His inspirations were classical arts, religious imagery, and the industrial world. His two most famous works are probably Joy Division's Unknown Pleasures album and the sleeve for New Order's 12-inch single, Blue Monday. If you have the Joy Division album, it's got all those squiggles in the front. That image is taken from an astronomy book. It's a graphical representation of 100 consecutive pulses from something known as a pulsar. A pulsar is a dying star that's essentially screaming radio waves. Specifically, this is pulsar CP1919, it's the stellar object found in the center of the Dumbbell Nebula in the constellation of Vulpecula. The Blue Monday sleeve is even more famous. When the record was released back in 1983, computers were still pretty mysterious things. Seville designed the cover to look like an old-school floppy disk, and I really mean old-school. We're talking the old five-and-a-quarter-inch disks that were actually very flexible and floppy. I mean, one of these things could hold a whopping 720 kilobytes of data. That's 360 kilobytes of data per side. And this sleeve is legendary. First of all, nowhere did it list the name of the band or the name of the song. Instead, there were a series of colored bricks. Those blocks contained a code that could be only cracked with a key 
that came with New Order's next album, Power, Corruption, and Lies. Okay, now let me save you the trouble and suspense. The code on Blue Monday reads FAC73. That's the serial number, F-A-C-73. It reads FAC73, Blue Monday, and The Beach, New Order. Okay, I'm not done. The original design of that sleeve was very, very expensive to produce. In fact, when you add in the cost of producing the record itself, New Order and Factory actually lost 30 pence on every single copy they sold. So what, right? Well, Blue Monday went on to sell 3 million copies. It's the biggest selling 12-inch single ever. So let's see, 30 pence times 3 million equals 900,000 pence. There's 100 pence in a pound, which means 9,000 pounds on the negative side of the ledger by releasing the most popular 12-inch single ever. It's amazing. You can blame it all on the artwork. New Order and Blue Monday, a song that cost them money to produce because the artwork for the 12-inch single was so expensive to create. Remember how I said there was a code locked in the colored blocks in the Blue Monday sleeve? Someone else did that. Got the secret next. This is a show all about the secrets of album cover art. And here's the real story behind what you see on the front cover of Coldplay's X and Y album. Just like what we see with the colored blocks in New Order's Blue Monday 12-inch, there's a code embedded in X and Y. But what's the code? What does it say? Well, I'll tell you that there's a mistake in the cover, but I'm kind of getting ahead of things. So follow me. There's, there's a whole bunch of layers here. Coldplay is made up of a bunch of brainy guys, a lot of university wonks among the ranks. Art and artwork, very important to them. When it came time to design the cover of X and Y, they hired a company named Tappen Gofton. Coldplay liked what they had done with a Chemical Brothers album called Push the Button and thought that they would give them a chance on their record. The two guys in Tappen Gofton spent some time doing some research and stumbled upon an old form of communication called Badeau Code. This was a binary code invented in 1874 by a telegraph operator named Emile Badeau. And he designed it as as a way of speeding up the sending of telegraph messages. In fact, its original name was International Telegraph Alphabet Number 1. The code was generated using a special five-button mechanical keyboard. It worked quite well, and over the next quarter century, it went through a series of improvements and modifications until they came up with International Telegraph Alphabet Number 2. When received, any message was represented on paper by a collection of blocks. And if you knew how Badeau code arranged letters into blocks, you could translate the message. Tappen Goffin spent a good deal of time studying Badeau code. And to add something a little extra, they introduced some color. Because back in the day, original Badeau code was all in black and white. In the end, they came up with a design that we see on the cover of the X and Y album. There is something embedded in that image. Again, don't be fooled by the colors. They mean absolutely nothing. The important thing is the arrangement of those blocks. It's supposed to say X and Y. But despite all the research, somebody got it wrong in the encoding process. To a Badeau Code Pro, the album is actually apparently called X96.
Coldplay with Speed of Sound from X and Y. You know, solve the mystery of the colored blocks on the front cover. By the way, I've since seen some websites that translate text into Badeau code. It's not very practical, but it can be very pretty. There's one more story. It has to do with the Beastie Boys, and specifically their second album. It was called Paul's Boutique. The cover shows a picture taken by Nathaniel Hornblower. If you're a fan, you know that's the alter ego of Adam Yock. Anyway, according to the album, Paul's Boutique is in Brooklyn. However, the photo actually shows a shop on the Lower East Side of Manhattan. The address is 99 Rivington Street, right there in the corner of Ludlow. You can make out an Al Green record, another record by the Modern Lovers, and that's Dwight Gooden's New York Mets jersey hanging there. The spot is close to where the Beasties first started rehearsing in the early 1980s. They used to get together about nine blocks away at 59 Christie Street near Hester and Canal. But before you go looking for this store, this Paul's Boutique, it's, it's not there. It's actually a store called Lee's Sportswear. There is, however, a coffee shop a few feet away that some enterprising dude has set up, and he calls it Paul's Boutique. He named it in honor of the album, not the other way around. The music industry continues to undergo some major, major changes very, very quickly. And as more and more of the business goes digital and virtual, the physical continues to disappear. I mean, look at all the record stores that have closed. Sam the Record Man used to run 100 outlets across Canada. It was the place to acquire music. Tower Records, United States, gone. Meanwhile, the number of CDs being sold continues to drop. The industry will have us believe that it's all due to piracy and illegal downloads, and that's true. It has had an effect. That sort of thing has had a big impact on sales. Things are not the way they used to be back in the day. But at the same time, consumers have never, ever, ever had so many choices when it comes to spending their after-tax money on entertainment. I mean, 15 and 20 years ago, we didn't have things like you know, DVDs and computer games and Xboxes and Playstations or high-speed internet or mega bookstores or 30-screen cinemas or pay-per-view TV hundreds of digital channels, on-demand TV, satellite radio, cell phones, ringtunes, and a million other things that have come to the market over the last 10 years. Billions of dollars that used to be available to buy records and CDs are now being reallocated elsewhere. Meanwhile, access to music has never been easier or cheaper. I mean, in the old days, you had to save up money, go downtown to the record store, park, find your record, line up the cash, drive back home, put the record on your stereo before you could actually enjoy it. The record cost you, let's just say 20 bucks, plus the cost of parking gas and the cost of your time. Then you realize that out of the 14 songs on that record, you only like three of them. The other all of them were crap, but it still cost you 20 bucks plus parking gas and your time. Today, using a computer or a cell phone, you can get just the songs you want for 99 cents each. Add in the sales tax, you're at what, $3.50? and you have everything instantly? If you only have so much money to spend on entertainment, which route would you take? I mean, duh. And the point of all this, to wrap it up, is that one of the many consequences of this shift in music from the physical to the virtual is that there is a declining need or demand for album cover art. We could be witnessing the death of an art that extends back nearly a century. And that would be sad. Technical Productions by Rob Johnston. I'm Alan Cross.
You've been listening to the Ongoing History of New Music podcast with Alan Cross. Subscribe to the podcast through iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, and everywhere you find your favorite podcasts. Thank you.